Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Okay, let's pray. Lord Almighty, bless us as we uh, learn tonight and help us, Jesus, as we seek to understand our world better so that we can be better ambassadors for the great King. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last Sunday night, I did a 45-minute introduction to tonight's message. So I am going to go very quickly over three things in quick reminder uh, to recall your mind uh, to what we are going to talk about. And if you uh, did not pick up notes, there are some notes, but they are the same as uh, last week's. Uh, So if you have last week's, we're just going to go over the side that says getting a good view of things, number three. And the first thing I wanted to remind you of that we spoke of last week is that when you read the Bible, there's always going to be at least one of three applications that you can make in God's Word. And the first one you remember is it will change what you do and your actions will be changed. And there's plenty of commands uh, that talk about this. The second thing, uh, application, general application you can take from scriptures is to change your attitude because that is also something that uh, very quite often needs to change. Amen? And number three, the Bible seeks to help us change in how we think. And even though tonight we are not going to the Bible uh, to learn, we are attempting to change how we think because we want to understand uh, some of the key ways that people around us think, which will lead us the next couple of weeks into how we then live. And I wanted to also remind you, number two, uh, of two things that I said about postmodernism last week. And the first one, postmodernism is the result of a history in Western philosophy, beginning in Greece, Rome, and basically Europe up until the time of America and even today, in which the history of the West has been trying the hardest it can to escape the fact of a creator God. Postmodernism is just the latest in a long string of attempts to get away from the fact that there is a God and no, you are not him. What we have settled on for the moment is a denial of the facts in toto, all facts, and a refusal to obey the laws of reason. And the second thing that I said about postmodernism last week is that postmodernism does offer some good criticisms of the prevailing worldviews that it came out of, known as modernism. However, the criticisms offered by postmodernism are the same ones as have been offered by Christians for centuries, and we don't need to accept the baggage of so much bad thinking in order to look at Uh, in order to understand these criticisms. We're going to get into some of those criticisms uh, tonight. And then lastly, I wanted to 
quickly remind you uh, so we can get right into it, uh, the three periods that we're going to talk about tonight. And I want to back up one uh, to the ancient period. You remember I gave you a quick outline of Western philosophy in very, very rough terms. And uh, I wanted to tell you, I was looking it up some more, and I, I found another author, and he said that ancient classical ancient history began really approximately 500 B.C. I said 753 because that was the birth of Rome. Uh, but about 500 B.C., 446 is when uh, Socrates was said to live. And uh, that ended then uh, 479 at the end of the Roman Empire. So approximately a thousand years of history is what we call the ancient Western history. And then from 479 till somewhere about 1500 is when we have what's called the pre-modern period of history. In school, most of you heard that called the mid medieval ages or the dark ages. And you remember last week I said dark ages is kind of an epithet. It's not a nice way of speaking of it. Uh, in fact, it's not even accurate, uh, but it was uh, it is a way that people refer to it. Then, uh, beginning with the Renaissance, and then particularly beginning with a man named René Descartes in the first half of the 1600s, began what we consider modern philosophy. Now, modern philosophy is continuing because there are enough people around today who are still modernists and have rejected postmodernism, but uh, it, almost immediately, by the 18th century, in the end of the 1700s, you began to get people rejecting the modernist or the um, Enlightenment project. That is part of what I want to explain tonight. What is this Enlightenment project, and what then is postmodernism coming out of it? And remember, the key thought that I've been wanting us to think over these last four weeks is something that I've stolen from a man named Gordon Fee, who is a commentator on the Bible. And he says, God is in the process of overturning the world systems. And my friends, what you and I cannot forget is that God uses means to accomplish his ends. And if God is in the process of overturning world systems, he does that through you and me. He does that by Christians thinking correctly so that we can then help the world that we're seeking to influence to think correctly too. Okay, so let's find out what this whole postmodernism thing is. And in order to do that, we're going to look at three general philosophical questions. There's three general categories in which all the other philosophical questions come into play. And the first is ontology. You'll hear uh, ontology is just what is real, what, what really is. It's the, uh, the science of being as another way of, of explaining it. You might have heard the term metaphysics. Metaphysics is often... Uh, broadly used to describe philosophy in general, but when it's more narrowly discussed, is talking about this ontology. So what are some of the answers 
that what are some of the general answers that come with this question, what is real? And remember, uh, last week I, I did tell you that uh, I am being outrageously oversimplistic in all of this. And there's many questions that I'm not even thinking about addressing, but here is what we're going to do. The pre-modern, the person who came before what's called the Enlightenment, but was what is called a realist. A realist is someone who thinks that what they experience in life really is real. How many of you are realists? Hopefully all of you are. Uh, We are realists. Now we are a subset of realists. We are realist supernaturalists. We are those who believe that what is real can be described as matter and energy. Remember, that was something I said many times when we were talking about naturalism. Uh, We believe that what we see is matter and energy. We feel the wood, we see the light, and we believe that. But we're also supernaturalists, and so we include something else in there. We believe that there is also spirit. And by and large, the vast majority of people in the entire history of the world are realist supernaturalists. And it's quite ironic, only in very uh, narrow bands of history have there ever even existed people who would be called atheists. Now, I'm not going to get into this. This would be a whole other discussion. But atheism is almost always in some degree, political. Because what the atheists are doing is they're denying God, they're denying a supernatural being who is acting as the authority that these atheists are trying to rebel against. If you want to have that discussion, come and see me. That is actually a fun discussion to have, but I'm not going to do it here. Uh, We are, in this sense, pre-modern. We believe that What we see is real, and we believe that many things that we don't see are also real. Uh, We live by faith, not by sight, as we learn in 2 Corinthians 5. But then you have the modernists. And the modernists, the Enlightenment project, you'll hear those two words. They're not uh, strictly synonyms, but they're very close. Uh, The Enlightenment project was these... Guys got together, mostly from England, although Rene Descartes obviously was from France. Um, They got together and they decided that the only thing that was real were things that they could experience. Things that could be empirically verified. If you couldn't find it in a test tube, if you couldn't measure it, then it wasn't real. And so this started this kind of uh, fight between these realists. Now, they were realists. They believed that what they saw really existed. But they were realist naturalists. They did not believe in a spirit. They believed that uh, matter and energy were real. 
But you came with this kind of debate between the modernists uh, on the different sides of this, and you had the rationalists, and the rationalists were, well, yes, it's true that all that exists is matter and energy, but there are also there is also reason, and we can reason things, and the things that we reason are actually true. And so you, they continued a debate. Uh, you know, I'm not even going to mention that because I won't get into it. Um, <laughs> the, the, these, and then you had this rationalist, and then you had the empiricist, and the empiricist said, no, 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 no. Not even what you think. It's only what you can experiment with. If you can't touch it, if you can't measure it, then it's not real. Now, you have to understand what a radical change this is. And for many of us in this room, I'm going to say probably for most people in this room, that is going to be a hard thing to understand how radical it is. Because I'm guessing most people in this room are thoroughgoing modernists. You're used to science being the victor over all. In fact, that's pretty much what happened after about the middle of the 19th century, the middle of the 1800s. Science seemed to be just steamrolling over every problem that could happen. And it seemed like we were going to become greater and greater technocrats, and therefore we were going to be able to conquer the world. Strange thing happened uh, in this, this desire to conquest the world, this desire to create a utopia, many different perfect societies. And the strange thing that happened was World War I. All of a sudden, we had this tiny little spark that happened in uh, Serbia, Sarajevo, if you remember the story, when Archduke... Archduke Ferdinand was shot, and all of a sudden, all of the cultural baggage in Europe erupted. And what happened in World War I is we, for the very first time, saw what modern warfare was. Now we had automatic weapons. Now we not only had better bombs, but we had better delivery systems. We had artillery that would launch these bombs, and tens of thousands of men were butchered by gas, by all these things. And what made it possible was science. And World War I was in very much the coming of age in Europe because Europe all of a sudden realized that all of this thinking, this uh, way to figure out science, empiricism, was going to destroy them. And this became a major step. It wasn't the only step, but it was a major step in bringing about what we now call postmodernism. Because what developed, uh, really beginning at the end of the 1700s, but then at this critical juncture at World War I, what happened was people began to step back 
and they realized something is radically wrong with what with how we're thinking, with how we're looking at the world as it is. And they take this step back and they start comparing notes and they're realizing, wow, if we keep going on this path, we are literally going to destroy ourselves. And so there came people uh, who, I'm taking a kind of a leap here in thought, but they became what's called anti-realists. No longer were they realist supernaturalists who believed in matter, energy, and spirit, and because they weren't going to be that because they didn't want to admit that there was a God. But neither were they going to be realist naturalists because they made a philosophical decision that that was a bad idea. Note that what happened is they made a decision that that was a bad idea. One of the things I noted is that the postmodernism, postmodernists did offer good critiques Some of their critiques of modern philosophy were correct. And in this case, one of the things that they were saying was, hey, wait, this is a bad idea. This is a dangerous road we're on. Let's get off it. And so what these anti-realists, because what they essentially did is they denied rationality. They denied reason. They denied that we could actually know what is literally out there. So they played a couple of games. And the one game that I'm going to describe, this is not the only way that they did it, but the one game that they used was to say that reality is a social construct. And how we view something is entirely decided by a culture or by a society, and that determines the reality. Now, let's give a very silly example. Uh, music. Music, uh, depending on which culture you're in, will de- that culture will define good music as one thing that somebody in a different culture would think, oh, my goodness, that's a bunch of noise. Is that not, a, is that not true? That is true, right? And so they, they took this kind of idea. Another example of this would be food. Some cultures eat monkey brains. That's kind of weird. But I suppose if I grew up in that culture, chilled monkey brains would be a delicacy just like it is for them. But there's a big difference between talking about music and chilled monkey brains and talking about objective reality. But because they made this decision to be anti-realist, they had to follow through with this and they defined real what is real as a social construct. And now, you have to understand, now, when people say that, well, it's true for you, but it's not true for me, they're making what we would call an objective statement. They are making a statement about reality. 
But we understand that that statement is fundamentally flawed because what is true for you is not necessarily true for you. You need to be accurately reflecting uh, reality and which is something that they don't want to do. So the postmodernist, rather than being a realist, has become an anti-realist. Now, I'm, I'm thinking of different holes that I've left in this discussion, and if you have questions about it, please do see me. But I have to say, it really is that bad. They're making this philosophical jump that we just don't believe that reality is something that's objectively defined, that we can see it as it is. So the first question, the first general question that philosophy answers is, what is real? The second general question that philosophy seeks to answer is epistemology. What can we know? Now, before I get into my description, I want to make something very clear, because this is easy to understand. I want to make two very clear statements about truth. What is truth? Truth, or actually knowledge first, knowledge is justified true belief. Now, this is, this is a very modernistic statement. But I want to, uh, and, and here's where we slide a little bit into modernism as Christians. Knowledge, accurate knowledge, is justified true belief. Justified means we have reason to believe it's true. In fact, not only do we have reason to believe it's true, but the greater the degree of, of verification, the greater the degree of proof that we have uh, about a certain fact, the greater our justification, uh, the more sure that we're going to be that is true. But the second thing is that it must also be true. You can have good reasons to believe that something is not true. Is that true? Yes. Okay, good. It must reflect reality. We are uh, what we call correspondence. Uh, we believe in a correspondence theory of, of truth. That means we believe that truth is something that corresponds to the way things actually are. But then it also needs to be a belief. Now, a belief gets tricky. A belief is something less than knowledge. And, and I'm, I'm saying this as a Christian, so don't think that I'm uh, deprecating my own faith because I'm not. But belief is not the same thing as knowledge. Belief is, uh, in a sense, a volitional statement. I am willing, I am deciding that something is true. We can have true beliefs and we can have false beliefs. But a belief is something that I am acknowledging as a fact. This is what I believe accurately reflects knowledge or the um, reality. So knowledge, real knowledge, what can we know is justified true belief. Now the second thing that we need to understand about truth or about knowledge is that people discover truth. We do not make truth. 
You'll understand why I'm making a big deal about that in a minute. But people discover truth. We discover truth by experience. And here's another place where the modernists are right. They were, the empiricists were saying, I have to be able to experience. I have to be able to measure it. And only if I'm able to measure it. Well, there's a great deal of truth to that. But we must understand that truth is something that we discover. We never make it. Now, what about, what about the pre-modernists? The pre-modernists uh, believe that truth is what corresponds to reality. This is the essence of pre-modern. Knowledge is available through two sources, revelation and reason. Well, of course, experience as well. I should have included that. Revelation, reason, and experience uh, would be the three ways a pre-modernist could have access to truth. But this, again, is a supernatural belief. It's something that we believe that there's something extra, there's something more, there's something super to the mere natural that we experience. And again, we would fall there in that. And the correspondence theory of knowledge is what I said a moment ago. A belief is true just in case it corresponds to reality. Now, the modernist took a step away from that. The modernist, uh, the essence of modernism is the autonomy of human reason, experience and reason. It's this idea that man's mind is able to comprehend. And that is what uh, knowledge is. This, what can we know? It's all happening up here. I just have to take a time out for a second. I mean, that is just ridiculous. Give me a break. I mean, really? You're, you're going to rely just on these little brain cells, the little gray matter inside our heads? I'm, I, for one, am going to be looking outside that uh, for, more, for more than reality. Now, they were also correspondence theorists. They believed that knowledge needed to correspond to reality. But there was an important caveat. They changed this idea of how we know reality in a very particular but important way. And that is reality is reduced to that which, at least in principle, can be empirically verified or reasoned. Thomas Jefferson famously took the New Testament and cut out all of the miracle stories of the New Testament. If you, uh, Jefferson Bible... Is, it's a famous thing. I guess if you go to Monticello, you could see it. But he went and he cut out all of the miraculous stories. And what you have is, I can only imagine, just a shredded Bible, right? I mean, what else would there be? Not a lot. And the reason was, is he believed that the miraculous was impossible for the modern, and he would have called himself a modernist, for the modern man to believe. We could not believe that Jesus changed the water into wine. We could not believe that Moses crossed the Red Sea on dry land because these were impossible. They're contrary to nature. You can't explain these things by any uh, natural means. And so only if something could be 
verified either by your experience, by your senses, or through your reason, could it be true? Now, this has some very important ramifications. As soon as you believe only that which you can verify, you are going to be radically skeptical of everything. How much do you believe on a daily basis about things that you really don't have proof? How many of you trusted the brakes on your car today? How many of you got underneath your car today and you did a hydraulic check and then you did a check on the actual brakes? How many of you cleared out all the dust under there? How many of you did a full inspection of your automobile before you got in it today and drove it away? I didn't either. Right? I mean, when you start being radically skeptical, then all of a sudden you're doubting everything. Now here, I have to say something here as well, because the modernists, and let alone the postmodernists, which we'll talk about in a second, the modernists could not be consistent with this. Nobody can be consistent with such a radical form of skepticism, doubting everything. This is what Rene Descartes did, and this is what famously, even more so, did uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. He really ended up doubting literally everything, including famously God himself, and whether his um, mental problems were organic. In other words, some, some say that he uh, contracted a disease and that was why he went crazy. Man, I think the guy just went crazy because he lost touch with reality in his doubting of everything. But now, they st- the modernists still believed, or at least they acted as if things were in fact true. You could have access. This really is a table. This really is a carpeted floor. But now the postmodernist is going to go another step in this idea of what can we know. To the postmodernist, truth is useful, not true. If you're going to force the postmodernist to use the word truth, which they are going to be very hesitant to use, if you are going to force them to use that word, what they are going to come up with is truth is useful. Truth is what gets you what you want. And so, if crossing the street with a green light means that you have a higher percentage of chance of getting to the other side of the street, then you should cross by the green light. But it's by no means true that green means go. Do you understand the difference? If it's true, if if, uh, handling your food correctly means that you have a higher percentage chance of not getting E. coli, then you should treat your meat chilled and then put it directly on the fire because that gives you a higher percentage of chance of not getting sick. But it's by no means true that you can get E. coli or salmonella from 
not treating your meat the way it should be treated. And this is the essence of postmodernism. Knowledge becomes a linguistic construction discernible by communities or individuals only. It's subjectivism. Subjectivism means it's something that's subjective. It's something that is either community or individually discernible. Period. And if a culture determines that something is right, then that culture is right. Now there are, are there, there's a myriad of problems going on here. The culture in 1930s Germany decided that it was a bad thing to be a Jew or a gypsy or any number of other things. And so the culture decided that we should exterminate them. So according to postmodern theory, if the culture determines what is truth, then what you get is the people that hid the Jews, the people who protected Anne Frank and others. Those were the people who were uh, cultural deviants. Those were the people who were, in our terms, maybe even terrorists, because they were going against what the culture determined. Now, if you are going to tell me, uh, and the lady from um, the hiding place, her name just fell out of my head, um, but if you're going to tell me that person is a moral wretch, then I'm going to tell you that your system of knowledge is a failure. Amen? But that's what happens. And so, uh, whereas we said that we believed in a correspondence theory of truth, a belief is true just in case it corresponds to reality, what the postmodernist is going to say, they have what's called a pragmatic theory of truth. A belief is true if and only if it works or is useful to have. Now, if you notice, I'm taking a series of steps here. We went from ontology, what is real, and then that, towards the end, bled into our discussion of epistemology, what can we know, and this has already bled into the third of the three large blocks of what philosophy is, and that is ethics, what is right. Now, the pre-modernist believed that ethics are determined by obligations, by laws. Uh, the divine right of kings, for example, was one of the high laws for the uh, pre-modernists. Now, uh, they had this idea of collectivism. In other words, right was determined by the collective, by the community that they were in, but they had what at least this author I was looking at uh, described as an altruistic collectivism. In other words, they believed that what is right for the community was still a community decision. It was, it was for the betterment of the community. In fact, uh, one of the things that led to what is called modernism or the modern times is all of a sudden people were able to 
travel outside of their community reliably and not get mugged or get killed as an outsider. There, there became this uh, transportation uh, roads that became reliable and you could actually travel and that's uh, part, uh, humanly speaking, of what created the Renaissance and then the Reformation. The modernists... And, and here, we're going to spend uh, much more time talking about ethics, but this is probably going to be the only historical um, layout I'm going to give to it. So I want to emphasize that this, all three of these layers between the pre-modern, modern, and post-modern, there's a lot of flux in here. And, and these, I'm giving them as black and white, but they weren't obviously as, as black and white as all this. But the modernists although they had this idea of, of laws determining what is right, they came to what is now known as utilitarianism. The ends justify the means. And this became the dominant modernist ethic. And so no longer were specific laws what determine right or wrong, but we could use laws in achieving, quote-unquote, good ends. When do you think lawyers became really big in the world? They came. Uh, lawyers used to mean they were experts in uh, Christian or Judeo-Christian laws, but then lawyers became people who can talk really well to prove whatever point that they had so that they could show that these particular ends that they had used or their client used achieved a justifiable mean or, or were achieved by a justifiable means. The ends were achieved by a justifiable means. And so they became utilitarian. And this has, especially in the West, come to fruition as a very individualistic society. I want you to understand something that's crucial about Christianity that Americans by and large miss. We tend to think of Christianity as a very individualistic religion. And it's true. Individualism, to a great extent, exists because the Judeo-Christian uh, worldview. But individualism is not a good thing. And in the United States, this whole idea of being able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps has had some benefit, but it's also made us into the culture where we go home at night and sit in front of a boob tube and lose all of our real community identity and we have become communal in what shows we watch which is very egocentric very individualistic and one of the good criticisms of most postmodernism is this idea that individualism is a bad thing now, again, you have to be careful. You, you, you have to be careful. Indi 
having an individual identity is a good thing, but this rock-solid belief in individualism is not. The postmodernist has decided that ethics are determined by community. And again, this is a relativism. uh, Ethics are determined by whatever the community wants and is completely relative to them. By the way, if you ever want to read a good book, read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Some of you are thinking, oh, I've read that. But what you may or may not have noticed while you were reading it 20 years ago or whenever it was you did is that mere Christianity is an attempt to give what's called the moralist uh, argument for God. That there are, in fact, real morals and that the existence of real morals, in fact, proves that there is a God and, in fact, as it turns out, the Judeo-Christian God, the God, the creator God of the Bible. We don't notice that very much because what was really interesting is in the 1960s or late 50s, when, whenever it was that Lewis wrote Mere Christianity, he was already dealing with an almost postmodern culture. Whereas in the United States at the late 50s and early 60s, we hadn't noticed it yet here. And if you look at his argument, he is talking about postmodernism and how, in his mind, it was going to destroy culture. And so he was giving an argument against it uh, while he was arguing for um, the existence of the biblical creator God. Now, where are we going with this? In the next couple of weeks, I'm sorry, I haven't decided either the next two or three weeks, we are going to explore this idea of Christian ethics. And what I'm going to argue for is a two-part way of thinking about ethics. And the first is I want to affirm that we are deontologists. Ooh, I love using fancy words. A deontologist is someone who believes that ethics are determined by laws. Can anyone think of any laws that have any, uh, anything to do with how we look at ethics? Ten Commandments. There we go. Bing, bing, bing. Ten Commandments. We are a religion that values still laws. But we are also what we are going to call um, Ariatic in our uh, understanding of ethics and that means we are we believe that what especially the new testament teaches is that how ethics are determined is a measure of the character of the person acting and what i am going to hope by the time i'm done with this is to show you that the entire sermon on the mount Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is a sermon given by Jesus to show that what is most important is not law, but the character of the person who fulfills the law, not as law, but as one who is redeemed by God. If that interests you at all, stay tuned. We will be, get, we will be there in Probably two weeks or maybe three. Let's pray. 
Thank you, Jesus. We love you and we are thankful that you are the great God. And we ask, Jesus, that you would indeed guide us. Help us to think rightly. And God, if I have confused people, I pray, Jesus, that you would forgive me and you would help us uh, in our thinking. And then, Lord, as we go in the next couple of weeks into ethics, how should we um, determine what is right? Lord, we will have an understanding, especially from the Bible, as to, uh, Lord, how we can be the men and women of God who bring glory to you and show the world that we love Jesus more than anything and everything. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.